The following program has some naughty language, so if you are listening to this near little ears, make sure they have little earbuds, but you may also want to distract them. I suggest shadow puppets. It's Monday, May 9th, 2022. From Peachfish Productions, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. I'm most concerned with what happens to women who can't get abortions who want or need them. I'm less concerned with message discipline. I am less concerned than that with denying right-wingers talking points by over-catastrophizing. I'm not very concerned about the most extreme possibilities that can be generated by the minds of otherwise properly concerned people. But I gotta say, I'm a little concerned about all of them. I don't understand. I don't get that in so many quarters you come across these nightmare scenarios and what can be defined as something of a reality nightmare, and not just by specifically seeking them out. I'm not Googling nightmare, scenario, worst case, Alito. Just coming across these thoughts in my usual media diet. Here, this is from the public radio program Left, Right, and Center. Jill Filipovich was on. I met a woman named Silvana who was raped during Colombia's Civil War. She was a teenager. She didn't know where to get an abortion. Abortion was illegal in her country. She starved herself until she had a miscarriage. Uh, I met a girl quite recently, um, just a couple years ago in Honduras. I, I'm giving her the pseudonym Sophia, but uh, she was 12 and about to give birth because Honduras outlaws not just abortion, but also emergency contraception. These are the stakes. This is what will happen in the United States the second that Roe goes. I would think that the reason a member of the FARC during the Colombian Civil War couldn't get medical care was that she was a member of the FARC during the Colombian Civil War. I would guess that the salient aspect of a 12-year-old Honduran who couldn't get an abortion was that she was living in Honduras, but it doesn't matter. What's troubling in America is the certainty that millions of women of very mundane, identifiable existence who are our country women will be denied the medical care and reproductive rights they were guaranteed, well, today, but maybe not in two months. Not the crazy spun out scenario of unimaginable consequence that could possibly be replicated in America. On this show, Left, Right, and Center, that if you couldn't tell is ostensibly dedicated to reasonable discourse, the question was, what will happen if Roe falls? Even under that scenario, the United States will continue to be a first world country without a decades-long Marxist insurgency. It won't become a narco state with a murder rate in the 50s. I don't know that those things would happen once Roe falls. The second Roe falls. Similarly is this other answer, what's next if Roe falls and the courts throw out the rights to privacy under Griswold? Well, I would say that we should worry about the courts targeting gay marriage. I think that's reasonable. I think that falls into the definition of a reasonable thing to worry about. But here's what Yvette Simpson put on the table, and she wasn't alone. Many people are saying this. The question on ABC's This Week from Martha Raddatz was, do you think if Roe is reversed, the court could go further on taking back same-sex marriage? But he does open up in this question about the due process clause that there are these um, previously given rights that are not deeply rooted or long held, like interracial marriage, like contraception, like gay marriage, that could be ripe under the same analysis if the court were to get that question. And so that's another reason that Democrats need to be sounding the alarm, because if you are not a woman and this is not your issue, what is your issue? And they may be coming for you next. 
Interracial marriage. Simpson wasn't alone. The idea that the courts could roll back interracial marriage was cited many places. Really, a policy with 96% support in the public. I'm worried about the 4%, but it does have 96% support. Legalized interracial marriage. Not only would it not pass in any state, do we really think Ginny Thomas is so skilled at the art of bamboozlement, she would convince her husband to invalidate their own marriage? I could think of four reasons why these scenarios are raised. One, it could happen. That is true. It's co- it could. It's not untrue. Two, fear works. Maybe the pundits are thinking striking fear into the hearts of viewers is a good motivator. They don't take into account what the downside of that could be. Three, this Ruling, pending ruling, if it is to occur, has unmoored us all so much from what we thought was reality. It is hard to discern the likely from the unlikely. Mm -hmm. Or four, reality all the time, especially with a ruling like this, floods us with adrenaline and dopamine that in order to get a sense of alarm, a hit of alarm, we have to take our warnings to an ever more heightened level. I personally, as you can tell, don't think it's useful. I don't know that this will have very dire consequences, catastrophizing like this. I actually find it more puzzling than troubling, and there are far more troubling things going on. But just like the actual attacks of 9-11 or the bonafide insurrection on the Capitol that we saw, just like both of them were real and engendered things to actually worry about, wild predictions and runaway fear I find that to be less than the optimal glide path to what we hope will be sanity in the future. On the show today, a contemplative spiel. In it, we have Ed Koch, anti-gay smears, the death penalty, Roe versus Wade, and the judgment of history. I don't go all boats beating back against the current on you, but it has a little bit of that flavor. But first, the Duke professor, Sunshine Hillegas, is an interesting and sharp-eyed researcher on such areas as wedge issues, youth turnout, and how much to believe that the Russians are trying to sway elections. I'll cut to the chase on that one. They're trying. It's not really working, even though sometimes their candidate wins. Sunshine Hillegas up next. Hey, all you true crime fans, this is Mike Ferguson. And this is Mike Morphin. And we'd like to invite you to listen to our podcast, Criminology. Launched in 2017, we've covered a variety of strange cases from murders to missing persons. Some of the cases are ones you may not have heard of. Other cases we cover are some of the most historic in true crime. There are 200 episodes of Criminology available to binge on right now. And new episodes come out every Saturday night. Subscribe to Criminology today, wherever you listen to your podcast. So if you know me, I love to dabble in the political science, and a name kept coming up in a lot of interesting and disparate papers I had been reading or reading about, and I gotta be honest, if the name was, you know, Beth Stevenson, I might not have noticed, but the name was D. Sunshine Hillegas, who's a professor of political science and public policy and the director of the Initiative of Survey Methodology at Duke University. Okay, that's the boring part of her title. She, as far as I could tell, has expertise in a few areas that I'm very interested in. One 
one is persuadable voters. She wrote about that. And the subtitle of the book is something I'm interested in too. The persuadable voter wedge issues in political campaigns. That was in 2008. And then she wrote a book about making young voters converting civic attitudes into civic actions. And what I like about her specific take on that is unlike every story we get every two years, voters, she acknowledges, are not going to be the tide that determines the next election. But it's still interesting to find out what makes young voters or would-be voters uh, actual voters. And she's also been looking into with something called the polarization lab that I want to talk to her about that, the issue of polarization, I think one of the biggest and overriding issues of our time. Sunshine Hilligus, welcome to The Gist. Thank you for having me. So I read a uh, study, as I said, I dabble, by uh, Brockman and Kala, and they, I'm sure you know of this uh, study that they put together. They paid Fox viewers to watch CNN and see how their attitudes changed, and their attitudes changed. I guess maybe we could have predicted that. Although you and your fellows at the Polarization Lab ran a similar study about Twitter, and it didn't work. Can you tell me about that study? I don't know if we, we should say work. There was no effect from exposing uh, Twitter users to bots of the opposite political persuasion. Yes. As co-director of the Polarization Lab, we are trying to understand um, you know, if and how um, social media might contribute to polarization. I mean, we have seen all of the headlines, right? I mean, everybody thinks that um, social media is the root cause of of um, incivility in this country and, and polarization. You know, I have spent a lot of my career trying to do is not just look at the headline, but really try and empirically evaluate um, what are the conditions under which you're going to to get persuasion and attitude change and when are you not and and so this seemed like the the perfect opportunity to try and figure out you know were these russian trolls that we heard so much about in the 2016 election and and subsequently are they killing american democracy right that was certainly the the, the storyline and we happened to, to have a study that we were studying something else, but realized that we could identify within our sample of Twitter users, those who had engaged with these, these bots. And despite all of the claims out there that this was going to have this, you know, profound effect, what, what we showed is that in fact, across a variety of different attitudes and behaviors, it didn't matter. It, it doesn't mean that um, it's not a very important thing for us to to recognize that you know the Russian government is trying to um, you know influence the American public. So it's you know there's all kinds of reasons that we should still be concerned, but the reality is is that the American public is not a blank slate. There was once this view that um, you know that anybody could come along, and it was called the the hypodermic needle perspective of political persuasion that that the, the public was just going to be you know persuaded by any you know slimy politician that that could get their their ear um, but the reality is is that that the vast majority of people have existing 
um, attitudes, beliefs, predispositions, and that shapes who they expose themselves to. So it turns out a lot of the people who were most exposed to the Russian trolls were among the people who are kind of hardest to change their mind. And it's also the case that you have to look at impact um, by considering that you know, where somebody started in addition to what they're exposed to um, before you figure out if, if there's going to, it be, to, to be an impact or not. And, and so, you know, if you have a whole bunch of people who are already polarized, then giving them a little bit more information that is frankly not that different um, is, is going to have no impact. Again, it doesn't mean that, that it's not problematic that they were in the, the information space, but we don't want to give them more power than in fact they had. The Russians tried to influence our election. They absolutely did. They were in there. They were making arguments. They were getting eyeballs and attention. All that's true. But what your survey proves, shows, indicates, uh, what where all the information line, lines up is if the Russians hadn't done this, the election would have run the same because the people they were mostly exposing their opinions or fake stories too, where the people already in the bag and receptive to those opinions. That's about it. And keep in mind also that the percentage of the information that they were providing, it, it was so tiny. Even if we just consider the information that people were exposed to on Twitter, right? So, so Again, it's it's bad that it happened, but when you look at both the um, pervasiveness of that information and who was exposed to it, it just wasn't it wasn't really the big concern um, in terms of influence that that people yeah. worried about. Also, I'll add a qualitative element. I don't know how you could get to it. It wasn't good. It didn't seem, from what I saw, it didn't seem particularly persuasive. When I see some of those Sputnik news stories, I would say, who would be influenced by that? I guess the answer is someone already in the bag for that information. And I'm not comparing it to, you know, the the greatest story that's going to win a Peabody Award. I'm comparing it to comparable bad information as pushed forward by OAN, let's say. The Russian stuff seemed worse. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it, it, I mean, the quality of it was was also quite terrible. Now, one of the challenges, and I mean, this is this has maybe taken us in a slightly different direction, but I, it, one of the other aspects of kind of um, the polarization lab work that I'm most interested in, because I'm a survey methodologist, so I'm really interested in can we accurately measure what people think, um, and and so all of this concern oftentimes revolves around misinformation and disinformation and crazy conspiracy theories, right? And, and so some of the research that, that I've done has found out that it's actually really difficult to um, even measure the extent of really crazy beliefs in the American public. Because when you ask a question like, you know, do you believe in Pizzagate, that some of the people truly believe some of the people know that this survey is going to be used in a way politically that they want to cheerlead for one side or the other, even if they don't actually believe in 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 that yep. that crazy thing. Yep. Surveys have definitely a, this signaling effect. Absolutely. And then some people will just fuck with you. Right. And so some people are trolling the survey. And so what we found is that actually the, the people who claimed that they believed in Pizzagate, of course, we know there was somebody who really did. Right. He showed up <laughs> in the Comet Pizza place. But that more than 50 percent of the people who said they they definitely believed in it um, were also people who we were identifying as just given a funny response. 
So 50%. And so, so we, ju- we just can't take at face value these media claims about the influence of misinformation, nor can we take at face value these, you know, survey results about um, um, what people believe. And so, you know, it's one of the reasons that, that I think it's so important for um academics to really think carefully um, about, you know, what, um, you know, what it is that's actually happening in, 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 te- in terms of, of um, people's um, attitudes and beliefs. And, and frankly, the, the real story, um, in, in my view, when we kind of piece apart what's real and what's not real, and is that we're not as different from each other as, as often the headlines make us think, Right. People aren't as crazy as the headlines make us. They're also not as stupid as the headlines make us think. That that there are a set of incentives um, by the pollsters, by the media, right, to to focus on those things that exaggerate differences that um, you know make for provocative um, headlines. And the reality, things like wedge issues, yeah. which is another one of your areas of expertise. Exactly, exactly. Well, you just you hit on so many things in the sweet spot of my interests. I don't know if you listen to the gist, but you know, I guess my main founding principle is we're obsessed with not normalizing the catastrophic. Most of media is, but I always want to draw attention to not catastrophizing the normal. And that is absolutely what the media does. And as you pointed out, I talked to Brendan Nyan on the show, and I'm sure you're familiar with his work, but he gave some excellent reasons to disbelieve the headline findings of people are drawn to or willing to accept political violence. When he designed a survey really asking if that was true, he found that it's not 30% of people who will endorse political violence. It's something in the single digits, which is still too high, right? It should be zero, but it's no Nowhere near the catastrophic headlines. So you did this study where you found out that half the people were making a joke or trolling. How do you design a study that gets at that if the problem is that people joke with or lie to survey takers? Yeah, so so uh, there, there's a few different ways that you can do it, and and some of my favorite examples come from um, surveys of adolescents. So there was this you know multi million dollar project called the Adolescent Health um, Survey, and it tracked uh, young people um, decades over time, and it and it went into schools and did these extensive interviews with the students, and then interviewed the parents, and they started writing these papers, um, you know, talking about all of these kind of exceptional young people and, and uh, things like uh, teen pregnancy and so on. And, and then they started, somebody did a quality check. And what they did is they looked to see, oh, um, are those kids who say that they're adopted, um, what did their parents say when they, <laughs> they interviewed? Would know. And it turns out they weren't actually adopted. And those kids who said they were missing limbs <laughs> um, and that they they also were saying that they were in a gang and were had, had you know, um, murdered someone and were part of teen pregnancy. So, so there's all of these things that are like rare events that the combination of them, you just realize when you put them together that the blind, limbless, gang member, right, who also mm-hmm. reported, uh, you know, being a, a teenager who was pregnant, like that that's, they didn't all, you know, that they were, they were just messing right. with you. Um, but that kid's definitely 
definitely getting it to college based on his or her essay. <laughs> right. So, so, so but this was adolescence, right? And so you're like, okay, these are, these are just kids that are messing with you. But do we really think that these um, respondents who are taking hundreds, if not thousands of online surveys, they, they are making money to take online surveys? I mean, that's where a lot of our um, information about the public comes from, is what are really crappy surveys um, taken by people who take surveys all day long. And it, it turns out that they, they also, um, are sometimes, you know, bored right. or just looking for, and then when, when pollsters ask crazy questions, it's like this invitation for, um, respondents to give crazy answers. So, so I think it's partly this responsibility that the pollsters have to recognize that by them asking some pretty outlandish things that the people will answer with outlandish answers. Right. And and so one of my favorite examples comes from a survey that was done. You, you probably, you no doubt saw some of the headlines. You know, um, Americans are drinking bleach, right, to prevent um, COVID. And and this came from, and it's, it's crazy to me that the CDC is the one who actually sponsored the survey, but it happened to come from a survey in which they ask about all of these different use of, of household products. And um, 4% of, of respondents said that they had gargled or drank bleach. It, it was it was one of 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 many different categories. <clears throat> and first off, this sample was so small that for report the fact that the four percent gargling bleach is what made the headline is a reflection of what the incentives of journalists are or the the media organizations in terms mm -hmm. of what they're reporting. Because right, and then they do the extrapolation, which if true means that twelve and a half million people exactly, bleach. exactly, and 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 not <laughs> and besides the fact that the margin of error was greater than. Four percentage points. So it was yeah. such a small sample that it turns out negative two percent of people gargle exactly bleach. right. Like <laughs> I mean, it was just a complete. I mean, it was a perfect example of how the media incentives are really driving you know these crazy headlines. But the survey itself, even though it was funded by the CDC, was an online non probability survey. These are like junk, um, you know, surveys where. Um, it turns out somebody replicated the survey and the the, the people who answered um, and, and said that they gargled bleach, once they did some quality checks, it went down to zero. So it turned out that the people who had said that they um, were drinking bleach, these were people who also sped through the survey. They were people who gave a um, unrealistic height and an unrealistic weight. Um, they were they were people who were either joking around or not paying attention, which which turns out to be um, in that type of, of of survey a large percentage. And yet this went viral. It became all the headlines. And and so I think it's it's the fault both of the pollster for doing a crappy survey, but also of the journalist for magnifying what they thought would be a provocative headline. Although, Sunshine, to be fair, body dysmorphia is a consequence of bleach ingestion, it's been proven. So maybe they did have an unrealistic height and weight. Who knows? <laughs> fair, fair point. So those, I think I think one of the respondents said they were um, seven foot eight. So uh -huh. <laughs> <laughs> um, um, if I can, though. Oh, wait, was there also another one where they surveyed, I think, high school kids 
did you take drugs? Which drugs did you take? Uh, cocaine, marijuana, dropsy. You know, they made up a drug and kids said, yeah, I took that one. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yeah. Absolutely. And and that's a very common. I mean, every time that I do my own surveys, um, that's that's one of the things that that I do is implant some things to help identify those people who are going to answer in ways. And, and and that's key. So that's key because because what you want to be able to do is extract the, the good information from any given survey. But, you know, it, like it, particularly when you're talking about things that are crazy beliefs or rare events, you have to be super um skeptical that um, that it's you can just look at the raw data without considering the data quality. Sunshine Hilligus is a professor of political science and public policy at Duke. She's the author of Making Young Voters, Converting Civic Attitudes into Civic Actions and The Persuadable Voter, Wedge Issues in Political Campaigns. It was a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you. And now the spiel. The New York Times ran an excellent story over the weekend about former New York Mayor Ed Koch's life in the closet. I would say by the end of his life, he was acknowledged by everyone except himself to be gay. The Times doesn't spare Koch the critiques that he fairly earned, including such powerful details as the fact that he and AIDS activist Larry Kramer lived in the same building, and Kramer would sneer upon seeing Koch, that's the man who killed all of daddy's friends. Kramer was talking to his terrier at the time. Manhattan Tangent here, indulge me, I know that building, it's number two Fifth Avenue, and there are plaques of late residents on its edifice, along them not just Koch, Kramer, and Bella Abzug, but Edie Windsor, the landmark gay marriage plaintiff in Windsor v. U.S., the story of gay rights, all in one New York building. Okay, maybe to non-New Yorkers, Ed Koch is a parochial figure, one who a parochial metropolis convinced itself is universal. But there is a universal insight I took away, apart from the specifics on Koch and the specific torments that faced a gay man in public office at any time more than a few years ago and in many places to this day. To set it up, let's listen to ads that Koch ran during the 1977 mayoral election. We pay the average police officer $30,000 a year in salary and benefits to protect us. But of 25,000 police in this city, only 1,500 patrol the streets on an average shift. More cops than that call in sick every day. Obviously, we need more police on the streets. And we can do it without spending more money. By better use of the police force we already have. That may mean taking on the police bureaucracy and the PBA. But that's what a mayor has to do. The slogan on the screen, after eight years of charisma, reference to the patrician mayor, John Lindsay, and four years of club, the diminutive dealer, Abe Beam, how about competence? That would be Koch. He was a foot taller than Beam, an order of magnitude feistier than Lindsay, and unapologetic about taking on the union's crime and corruption. Koch perceived, and maybe he wasn't wrong, however, that to be known as gay to voters would sink his political career. Though the piece doesn't soft-pedal Koch's policy as it regards AIDS, which was to say to ignore it to the point of dangerousness, 
It does seek to understand Koch and to place his struggle to acknowledge his sexuality, what we'd call now to live his truth, to place that as tragic. If there are moral underpinnings or implications of the article, it's something like, the most moral way to live would be to honestly identify and support your community. An ambiguously moral path pays the costs of denial, and the least moral action would be to trade on anti-gay sentiments. And that is what was said to have emanated from the Cuomo campaign. Mario Cuomo and Ed Koch ran against each other in primaries for mayor and then for governor, and the blood between the two wasn't just bad, it was poisonous. Koch blamed Cuomo for signs that read, vote for Cuomo, not the homo, which were never photographed or physically preserved by anyone, yet they were said to be displayed everywhere from lampposts to the subway. During his lifetime, Koch refused to further the feud with Cuomo. After his death, he authorized an interview to be released in which he made clear that he very much blamed Cuomo. And while Koch doesn't emerge from this article as heroic, brave, or any adjective approaching laudatory, Cuomo comes across, to the extent he's treated at all, as having engaged in a horrible act. But I recall at the time, if there was an adjective that attached itself to Mario Cuomo, it was moral, moral but dithering, moral but preachy, moral but unrealistic. But he was said to be a man of such deep and abiding morality that it might just be his fatal flaw in getting elected to office or governing once there. He was moral in a Vatican II sort of way, influenced by the Vincentian brothers of St. John's University, where he was an undergrad, a law student, and then a law professor. And nowhere was this claim to morality upheld more than in Mario Cuomo's opposition to the death penalty. Koch, on the other hand, never mentioned in the article, was pro-death penalty. Here he is, after leaving office, summing up his views on the CNN show Firing Line. Is the death penalty constitutional? Two Supreme Court uh, decisions in 72 and 76 said, you bet. Is retribution acceptable? Retribution uh, is the uh, uh, noun and punishment is uh, the verb. Uh, Is it a deterrent? Evidence is inconclusive. Has anyone innocent in this country uh, been executed? There is no study which indicates that anyone has. Maybe someone has. And if that were the case... The death penalty still has majority support by the American public, but it has disappeared as an acceptable policy for progressive liberals to support. As an actual occurrence... The death penalty is diminished to the point where we're five months into 2022 and there have been five executions in America so far this year. The biggest moral issue for most of my lifetime wasn't actually settled or decided so much as it receded. In the New York Times article about Koch, the death penalty didn't come up, like I said. Decency towards marginalized communities, that was treated as much more a definition of goodness of a person. But I can't emphasize how much the death penalty was seen not just as an important issue that was campaigned on and debated, but as the central statement about the character of America. Here was a 1982 Village Voice article I came across. As openness and hope become overwhelmed by fear and hatred in enough people's lives, openness curdles to bitterness, and hope shrivels to a craving for revenge, hard-pressed voters turn to leaders with a streak of malevolence resembling their own. Leaders who reassure them perversely by showing them where they can extract vengeance for their own diminished lives. That is quite a condemnation. And who is it aimed at? Here's the next line. That is what Ed Koch does. 
and what his campaign for death accomplishes. This was written by Jim Sleeper, an influential, but not by the standards of that time or this, a radical. Who is the moral person, the liberally progressive person in 1982? Why, Mario Cuomo, because he takes a stand on the crucial moral issues of the day in 1982. Who is immoral 2022 version? Why, Mario Cuomo, for being associated with the smears against Ed Koch, even if we can't quite prove or even credibly allege he knew of them. And unlike a discussion of other moral issues, it's not that our definitions really changed. I mean, even in the 70s or early 80s, smearing a candidate for his sexuality was seen as wrong. That's why it had to be done sotto voce. And certainly now, being opposed to the death penalty is seen as right within progressive orthodoxy. It's the salience of each, the imperatives behind each stance. One we elevate as the searing issue of our time, the other fades and is taken for granted. I was thinking about the death penalty at Koch, Mario Cuomo, against the backdrop of what we've all been thinking about over the last week, abortion and Roe. There's a chance this probable ruling could play out like the death penalty, addressed though not settled by the federal courts, ultimately returned to the states and sort of handled, lived with, maybe via defeat or maybe via acceptance or compartmentalization so it becomes a less than galvanizing aspect of American life. Or it could cause an angry backlash. Or it's possible that the anger itself could cause a backlash. We don't know. It certainly seems like this is the pressing moral issue. But I can say that today's moral issues will play differently in the future in ways we never can anticipate. It always happens. Even though we tell ourselves the exact opposite story. With historic arcs bending towards justice as defined by our own current positions, or the judgment of history rendering the right verdict. The idea behind the judgment of history is that in the future, we'll look back to the past and make an accurate assessment unsullied by the present. That almost never happens. And even when it does, it gets erased, de-emphasized, or forgotten to meet the demands of the day. And that's it for today's show. Corey Wara is the assistant producer of The Gist. Joel Patterson, the senior producer. Michelle Pesca is not only the COO of Peachfish Productions. She's the coolest person around. She loves puns, and that's why I say them. The Gist is presented in collaboration with Libsyn's AdvertiseCast. For advertising inquiries, go to AdvertiseCast.com slash The Gist. Oomperoo, jeeperoo, dooperoo. And thanks for listening. <laughs>